Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. I was blind, but now I see. Say with me this morning, Lord, help me see. That It's easy to see our sin sometimes, but that but God part is what we, we have a problem with. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 3 as we continue teaching through this book and in our ID'd series, The Promised Son of the Living God, ID'd. I want you to use your imagination this morning, if you would. I want you to imagine with me that you're on a pastoral or pastoral search committee, and as you sit down to interview one of your candidates, he presents you with a five-point ministry plan. The first is... Don't go where people are. Make them come to you. And if they come to you, don't provide seating in the outside in a very, very hot climate. Number two, make sure to dress unattractively. That's what he's saying about himself. Number three, make sure you speak offensively and insult your listeners by calling them names like snakes and hypocrites. Number four of his ministry plan, tell the high-ranking political and religious leaders of the day that they have no integrity and expose their double standards publicly. And number five, encourage your followers to follow a far more worthy leader and admit your unworthiness as a preacher in comparison to him. Now that kind of strategy, if you're a pastor, Sitting down for an interview and presenting this five-point ministry plan seems crazy, but folks, this is straight out of John the Baptist's manual for ministry, right here. The man who was to prepare the way for the Messiah broke every pastoral interview rule possible. And yet, in Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says this about him. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So as we have seen, Luke, in the first two chapters, or first chapter, spends a lot of time speaking about John the Baptist. There was this prediction, if you remember, of his birth by Gabriel to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was the occasion, the celebration of his actual birth. There was this prophetic word of who John the Baptist would be. And in the last verse of chapter 1, Luke tells us about John the Baptist. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Today, our text picks up with his public appearance in Israel. Israel. So as we read the book of Luke, that Luke told us himself at the very beginning of the book, he said, I am writing this book so you will know with certainty who Jesus Christ is. If that's Luke's purpose, why in the world does he spend so much time speaking about John the Baptist? Why in the world does he spend so much time about the very particulars of this man's life John the Baptist. We'll see today it is because John the Baptist is a vital and important person 
for the salvation that God is working toward and ultimately providing in Christ. John the Baptist is crucial evidence in the identification that Jesus Christ is the promised son of the living God. John the Baptist is IDing Jesus. The first point I want to look at this morning comes from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And it is that history is his story. Here's what God does. God speaks in the midst of political and religious darkness. Read with me verses 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trajantius. Somebody help me. Yeah, thank you very much. Grace, grace. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, what we have here is Luke sort of establishes the historical context of John the Baptist's ministry. We're in the year about A.D. 28 or A.D. 29, and in those first two verses, Luke mentions five political leaders, starting with the most important, Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. And then he works his way down, if you would, down the chain of command. And then, as you notice, he mentions two Jewish leaders, or two Jewish religious leaders, telling us that it is during this time that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem. So we are tempted, I think, to just read over those verses when we read our Bibles, but that would not do us any, any benefit here. Luke is telling us that John's ministry began in the midst of political and religious darkness, in the midst of, if you would have it, a mafia-type corruption at the highest level of the power structures of Israel, both from the Roman side and the Jewish religious side. Tiberius Caesar, historians have called him dark, reclusive, and aloof. Pliny the Elder called him the gloomiest of men. Tacitus, the Roman historian, wrote this about Tiberius. Executions were now a stimulus to his fury, speaking of Tiberius. And he ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under accusation of complicity with Sangius. So these people sort of joined forces with Sangius or was on his side, another political leader, just in terms of what they believed politically. So what does he do? He kills them. They lay singly or in heaps the unnumbered dead at every age and sex, illustrious with the obscure. Kinfolk and friends were not allowed to be near them or to weep over them or even to gaze on them too long. Spies were set round them who noted the sorrow of each mourner and followed the rotting corpses till they were dragged to the Tiber, Tiber River where floating or driven on the bank, no one dared to burn or touch them. Tiberius and his potentates, appointed by Rome, were a horrible group of political leaders 
ruling over Israel at this time of John the Baptist's ministry starting. Then we have the two Jewish leaders that Luke lays out for us, Annas and Caiaphas. I don't know about you, but at first it seems weird or unusual that Luke would name two high priests when really that's only one job. And so what we find here is that Caiaphas officially held the office. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that many recognized, though, that Caiaphas' father-in-law, who was Annas, was the true power that pulled the puppet strings behind the scenes. Now, Annas, at one time, was the high priest, but he got fired in about 15 AD, and his son-in-law took it over. And so what Luke is letting us know here. Uh, Annas, in some ways, is called the Mafia Godfather, one expert wrote in Jerusalem, and is known for his evil and his greed. And Luke knows this, so he includes both men's names in the sense that one is the face of evil and one is pulling the strings behind the scenes. So, at the same time, Luke here is introducing us to the same men who will take part in the killing of Jesus that we'll find out later in this Gospel of Luke. Pontius Pilate and Herod. We know from the other texts they found no fault with Jesus, but they gave into the pressure from the crowd. We know Caiaphas organized the plot to kill Jesus and was involved in the trial of Jesus. And then we have Annas. Remember Jesus was brought to him for judgment prior to being brought before Pontius Pilate. So Luke is letting us know that it is the same scoundrels that eventually beheaded John the Baptist in next week's text that also murdered Jesus. So, so here's what Luke does. He says, it is while these people, while these scoundrels, while this political and religious darkness was taking place at the highest levels of government and religious life. Does that sound familiar? And it is at this time that the word of God, as we know, had been silent for 400 years from the last verses of Malachi. It is at this time that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Luke is telling us that history is his story. That history is God's story. God's redemptive history that was on pause for 400 years and to the people seemed like it was dead suddenly out of nowhere explodes on the scenes in the very darkest of times. Luke is letting us know that this is God's activity. This is not man's. This is not man looking for God. This is God coming on the scene and acting on his own behalf and for his own glory. <clears throat> this word of God that comes to John the Baptist in the wilderness. It is the same word the same word that God spoke and created all that we see. It is the same word that spoke to Abraham. It is the same word that spoke to Moses. And now this same word of God comes to John the Baptist. And folks, it is that same word, written or spoken, 
that comes to us and intervenes in our life in such a way and does miraculous things that we were blind and now we see. The reason we were blind and now we see isn't because somehow we got wise and figured it out. We were blind and now we see because somehow the word of God came to us and showed us our sin and at the same time showed us but God. It is that word that comes to John the Baptist. And yet, as Kevin said this morning, because of the depravity of man, man's biggest problem, and if I asked you that, we'd have a thousand different answers. But let, since I'm speaking, I'm going to give you my opinion. Man's biggest problem is he does not listen to the word of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us with a great warning. When you hear the word of God, do not harden your heart. Man, what an encouragement for us in the darkness of our world. We can know with certainty that God in Christ is still acting. He is still active. We know our world is full of political and religious corruptions, but God is still acting in spite of men and circumstances. And so for us as believers, though we care about that and though we're to be engaged that and though to speak out to that, our hope and or either our despair is not based on what is happening in the world our hope is based on the truth that God is God despite men and sin. He brings his word to a lost world. Think about this. He brings his word to a lost world and people even today are still trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. He brings his word to you and I, to us over and over in spite of us and he uses us to encourage us, to convict us, to correct us, to give us hope, to lead us in the way of life, to help us flourish as humans. His word is a lamp unto our feet. He is still bringing his word. So history is God's story, fear not. Then secondly, Luke sort of tells us this. He focuses in on John the Baptist and in essence, I put it there, John the Baptist is his, speaking of God's man. God fulfills what he had spoken to the prophet Isaiah in verses 3 through 6. Read with me or look with me at verse 3. And he, John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crook shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke says here, John the Baptist is God's man to fulfill, to show us 
from the prophet Isaiah that he was the forerunner. Now, as I looked at this text, I thought John the Baptist is 30 years old. And we know that 30 years old, an, an angel, 30 years earlier, and an angel had told John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who this child would be. We found out in Luke 1, this child, John, will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. He will do this in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will make ready and prepare the way for the Messiah. So that's a prophecy in a sense. So a prophecy of 30 years is incredible. But there are ways to sort of self-fulfill that. If you're alive or, you know, you heard that about yourself when you were little. But a prophecy of 700 years, folks, is at a whole nother level. Would you agree with that? Luke here takes us back to the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, that speaks of the one who will be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. This prophecy is identifying John the Baptist is the one that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 43 through 5. And in doing so, it also identifies Jesus as the long-awaited Son of God and the Messiah. Verse 3. Here's what Luke does in verse 3. He gives us this geographical setting in the wilderness around Jordan. One expert of that region said this about the Jordan wilderness. He said, it's a deep depression created by the Jordan River, 1,300 feet below sea level. So it's in this huge hole with no wind and humid and hot, maybe much like Murfreesboro, right? A hot and an uninhabited depression, which is wild in every way and removed from all civilization. So here's John the Baptist said he went preaching there. His, here's his sermon intro. Thank you for coming out to this hot, uninhibited depression in the desert. It is a great privilege for me to address you this morning. And let me start by telling you, you are a brood of vipers. That breaks the rules, doesn't it? John the Baptist is a 30-year-old man. He has no part in the establishment of the day. He is uncluttered with the lifestyle of his culture. He is unrefined by the standards of society. He is not very socially savvy, but John the Baptist knew God and he took the word of God given to him to confront the people of the day about their sin and to confront specifically the political and religious culture. Now in this, it says he's teaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is not simply a ceremony washing the outside of the body with water. John the Baptist is saying this. He is saying that they can be forgiven if they repent so deeply. Think about his Jewish audience. If they repent so deeply that they are willing to be baptized in the same way a Gentile would be baptized if they wanted to convert to Judaism. Matter of fact, there was a special ceremony in the Old Testament where if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, they would go through this baptismal ceremony. Luke, uh, 
Luke is writing here that you must repent or John the Baptist's message, I'm sorry, saying is you must repent in such a deep and genuine way that you as a Jew are saying publicly that you are no better than a Gentile. That's a shock, folks. That's scandalous in that culture. That's the message John is preaching. You are no better than a Gentile. In reality, they were. You are no better than a stinking pig Gentile. If you repent like that, you got a chance. The baptism of repentance required the Jew to admit that they had forsaken their covenant with God and and they needed to approach God as if it were the very first time. Real repentance, as we'll see in verses 7 through 14, is reflected in a concern for others and produces a life lived with a sense of responsibilities toward the sovereign God of the universe. There's this responsibility and this sense within us. This is what true repentance looks like, that I am responsible to. I am accountable to. I stand before this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing God, and he allows me to breathe or to not breathe. He allows my heart to beat or to not beat. There's a sense here that I am not alone. I do not do what I want to do when I want to do it and how I want to do it. There is this responsibility and repentance sort of starts with understanding that. It is an internal attitude that aims at a reorientations of one's heart and life away from sin and toward God. And those here that submitted to John's baptism knew that God's coming demanded a preparation of the heart. So when John says he is preparing the way, one of the things he's doing is preparing the hearts of men and women to receive this king. And no one, no one comes to Christ without repentance and belief. Jesus came on the scene. John came on the scene saying what? Repent. Jesus came on the scene and said what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist is preparing the heart. It's amazing. The first part of that Isaiah 40 passes. The prophet Isaiah predicts a time where a, there would be a voice that would come out of the wilderness and he would be crying out. He's saying, this is John the Baptist. <laughs> Folks, this is him. It has arrived. It has come. Then Isaiah says, this person will prepare the way of the Lord. That's what John was created to do. That was his mission. We saw that from Luke 1. And here's what's beautiful about this is the analogy that Isaiah uses in this prophecy about preparing the way is really to get a highway ready for a king. In the ancient days, so the Old Testament days, when a king wanted to set a, take a tour of his domain, to go from town to town or city to city, there would be a messenger that would go out. There would be a forerunner that would go out. There would be an advanced man that went to those towns and said, get ready, get prepared, the king is coming. 
And in doing so, what they would do is they would send folks from those towns and they would literally, they didn't have bulldozers, but they would make sure the king could get there. They would take care of all the boulders and the rocks of the road. They would fill the potholes. They would cover up depressions. They would knock down mountains. They would make smooth the way so the king would have a road to have access to his domain, the people that he ruled, that would fit the dignity of who he was. Look in this text at the highway, prepare the way kind of language. The forerunner, John the Baptist, makes his path straight, make the Lord's path straight. A valley filled, every valley filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crook made straight, and rough places shall become level. John the Baptist is the voice and the preparer of the coming Messiah. He is saying, get ready. He's the messenger. He's the forerunner. He is saying, get ready. The king is coming. And six months later, Jesus starts his ministry. When I, when I think of that, the word that comes to my mind is kaboom. In the Greek, that means kaboom. <laughs> Here's what we need to remember about Isaiah 40. We need to remember, and this was so fun this week to make some of these connections. We must remember that the Jews knew the Old Testament, and therefore they understood the context of Isaiah 40. Because the context here is amazing, folks. Remember... Not too long ago, if you were here, we talked through the whole book of Isaiah. And you may remember that the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah speak of severe judgment on the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Matter of fact, in the northern kingdom, judgment was so severe it got wiped out and never came back. And then in the southern kingdom, there was this threat of judgment because of the sin of the Israelites or sin of God's people. And that judgment came to fruition in 586 B.C. with the Babylonian captivity. So you get, if you're a Jew, by the time you get through reading or knowing about or being taught the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there is this sense in you to ask this question, is there any hope for us as a people? Is there any hope for Israel? Because it seems hopeless. One through 39 is absolutely, absolutely seems hopeless for Israel. And then in your amazement, then in your shock, then in your, what is this? You get to chapter 40. And the first two verses of chapter 40 read this. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That is, would be stunning to a Jew. And the very next words are Isaiah 43 through 6 that speak not of the destruction of Israel, but to the salvation of Israel and to the salvation of Gentiles. 
It promises both salvation to the repenting Jew and the repenting Gentile. Matter of fact, Isaiah 40 to 66 is a message that salvation is coming. And this is the first glimpse we see of it in Isaiah. And that's the text that Luke uses to identify the Lord Jesus is coming through his forerunner, the Messiah. The time has arrived, folks. He is coming. He is here. It's just a matter of six months before he appears. So we have history as his story. We have John the Baptist is his man. We're identifying the long-awaited promised son of the living God. And thirdly, we have life change is his aim that God calls people to recognize their sinfulness and repent. Let me read verses 7 through 14. He said, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized with him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers came to him and said, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So Luke writes, life change is his aim. God calls people to recognize their sinfulness and repent. So John the Baptist here is calling people to acknowledge they are sinners because the way to prepare the way for the coming Christ, for the coming Messiah, is to in a sense heighten our senses when it comes to our sinfulness and the seriousness of sin. If you know that God is going to visit your house, here's what you do. If you know that God today is going to visit your house, you go around and try to get rid of any, any semblance of sin. Do you not? And you tell your kids, don't say stupid stuff, right? <laughs> and and, and there, look, my mom would clean the house just for the pastor to come by. Put the liquor bottles under the cabinet. John the Baptist is here says that, look, he's coming. God in the flesh is coming. There needs to be this heightened sense of the seriousness of sin. That's one way that I am preparing the way for him. Verse 7, he calls them, as I mentioned earlier, a brood of vipers. And he asked them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In essence, God's wrath, as you may or may not know, had this Old Testament imagery of fire. And so John the Baptist, in a sense, is saying this. He's saying that you are like snakes fleeing from holes from the approaching brush fire. You sense God is coming, 
and his wrath will be coming with him unless you repent and you're running out to me to get some quick answers. Verse 8, as John confronts them with their sin, he turns his attention to those who had come to believe that their Jewish ethnicity, that their Jewish heritage guaranteed them a place in God's kingdom. And being kin to Abraham made them morally and spiritually acceptable to God. John the Baptist knew that his audience were really saying in their hearts, we're okay, we're safe because of our connection to Abraham. Folks, we still do that in the Western world. We think we're safe because of growing up in church. We think we're safe because of our own self-diagnosed goodness and kindness and niceness and success and how we come across in our community as a leader or whatever. Like we think we're safe for a lot of reasons. There's only one way to be, one way to be safe in God's economy and that is trusting in the shed blood of Christ. Verse 9, John the Baptist again confronts them about their sin by comparing people to trees that either bear fruit or don't bear fruit. Now, here's what you and I know. It doesn't take an expert. Anybody with any common sense and a little age to them can go into an orchard of fruit trees and they can look on the trees and they can say, that tree is either healthy or that tree is sick. We know that tree is healthy because that tree is hanging with fruit, beautiful, ripe fruit. And this tree is unhealthy because it's brown and it has no fruit. John the Baptist is saying that repentance, a turning away from sin into God, is the fruit of a heart yielded to God. Repentance, he is saying, is an ongoing conscious decision to continually and consistently turn away from your sin and back to God. So the immediate question that we may think is, how often do I repent? My response would be answered back with a question. How often do you sin? See, we came to Christ by repentance and belief in the shed blood of Christ, and we walk with Christ and become more like Christ, conformed to his image by repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lifestyle. It never stops till you take your last breath because you'll never stop sinning until you take your last breath. And here's what won't help. I know because I've done it, and I know because I've talked to many of you who do it. To wallow in shame, surprised that you have sinned, is not repentance. Repentance is acknowledging I sinned, I'm not surprised by it, I hate it, I want to change, and I turn and confess it, and I turn to God, and I turn to my Savior. It is Ephesians 2 where he says, you are an enemy of God, and then it says, but God. Verse 10, John's confrontation of sin prompted a question. They asked simply, what shall we do? 
And here's what John does. He answers by telling them that when a person is repenting consistently, there will be genuine life change. Life change is a way of life we say at fellowship. And here, John the Baptist is saying life change is a way of life because repentance is a way of life for the person that knows Jesus. John gave three answers, if you notice, depending on whose audience was about what they should do. There was, this, there was this general crowd, if you would, in his answer to what she will do. If you'll notice in the text, you put it in one word, John said, you need to be unselfish. And then to the tax collectors, when they said what she will do, John said, you need to be honest. Notice he didn't say, say you need to change jobs and step down from your job and resign from your job. He actually said, do your job with honesty and quit taking advantage of the poor and getting more money from the Romans. And then in verse, or in the third thing he did, speaking to the soldiers, he spoke of gentleness because the rule of law in that day was sort of non-existence. And if a soldier wanted something from you or wanted to take over your house, they could and they could make your life miserable. And John the Baptist tells the soldiers to be gentle. When I look at this list <laughs> and all the things that John the Baptist could say, my first thought is how unremarkable it is. Like, that, he's not setting the bar very high. But at the same time, I thought, what is our core struggles? If we had to think of our core struggles, three out of the top five we might say selfishness, dishonesty, and harshness. Think of selfishness, self-serving, self-protecting, self-righteous. Why do our marriages fall off the cliff? Number one core, what? Selfishness. We talked about abortion this morning. 97% of all abortions come from this. We see the sin as abortion, but there's this, it's like with our kids. We see their behavior, but as parents, if we're really doing a good job of parenting, what we want to address is the heart behind it. So we see unselfishness, we see the sin of abortion, but what's driving it, the heart behind it, is selfishness. 97% of all abortions are for personal convenience. It's not the right time. I'm too young. It's going to ruin my job. I'll make me drop out of college. It's because life is about you. And then honest or dishonesty. My gosh, how that ruins our lives. Hiding, deceiving, secrets, manipulating the truth to make it fit our narrative, and then gentle. We forget our ungentleness, our harshness. We forget the kindness and mercy to us but God. And when we do, we're easily harsh with others. Amen. Notice how these three things have everything to do with how we treat others. Reminds me of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You want evidence of a person who is consistently repenting? You see these things start to being produced. Not in perfection, but you see this change. 
I want to finish this morning by asking us a simple question from this third point. How do I get a feeling of gratitude of what Christ has done for me? Here's what John the Baptist would say. He would say that you need to seriously confront and look at the reality of your sin. Now you may think, if we do that, that's going to take me to condemnation. No. When you really see, see, you can't appreciate his grace until you first see his sin. You want gratitude from the Lord Jesus. Look at your sin. And then look what Kevin said this morning, which was unplanned. But I thought, I got to use that. But God. My sin, but God. My sin, but God. And something wells up in us. Like that's a savior that I can trust. Take a minute this morning and ask the question, so what? So what this morning in terms of who John the Baptist and what he's done and how he's identified Jesus, what would be your next step in terms of applying this truth to your own life?